0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 9 of the UK's first Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. In September and October 2007, the Information Commissioner published 38 decisions, whilst the Information Tribunal published 9. I'm here to guide you through some of these. In this episode, we'll be discussing decisions involving vexatious requests and what makes them such, disclosure of celebrity pay packets by the BBC, Disclosure of staff attendance at work The applicability of Section 21 to information on the internet The link between the fees provisions and Section 16 The first tribunal decision on disclosure of dead people's information And disclosure of information about police speed meters Over the past few months, there have been many decisions which have clarified when a public authority can treat a request as being vexatious. The number of requests received, the language used and the intention of the applicant can all be taken into account when deciding whether Section 14 should be invoked. A recent Information Commissioner decision goes slightly further. In East Riding of Yorkshire Council, dated the 27th of September, the complainant requested information from the Council relating to its health and safety policies and procedures, particularly where the documents addressed how risk is assessed and managed. The council refused to comply with the request on the grounds that it considered it to be vexatious. It stated that dealing with the complainant's requests was extremely time-consuming because he submitted multiple requests on the same theme, referred to different requests in one email, incorporated new requests into his email responses, creating a snowball effect, and mixed questions and requests for information together. The commissioner agreed with the council. In his view, the available evidence demonstrated a pattern of requests and even though the request in question may appear reasonable in isolation, considered in context, it can be judged as obsessive and unreasonable. The complainant appeared to be using this request for information as a continuation of his previous requests and complaints to the council. The Commissioner also based his view on the previous independent knowledge of the complainant's relationship with the Council, which he'd gained through his investigation of two other complaints relating to the same issue. The importance of complying with the Section 16 duty of advice and assistance when applying the fees provisions has recently been emphasised by the Information Tribunal. Robert Brown and the Information Commissioner and the National Archives, dated the 2 October, concerns a solicitor Who claims he is the illegitimate son of the late Princess Margaret? In case you're wondering, that makes him 12th in line to the throne. The complainant originally made a request for any information held by TNA in relation to Princess Margaret's affair or any illegitimate children born to Princess Margaret. This was initially refused, so he made 637 requests on the grounds previously stated to individual closed documents displayed in the TNA online catalogue. TNA relied on Section 14.2 to assert that all the appellant's individual requests were identical or substantially similar, and that therefore it was not obliged to comply with them. The tribunal felt that this view misconstrued Section 14.2. The appellant's requests were for information from specific records. If TNA had complied with the request in relation to one specific record and the appellant had then repeated the request for information from the same record, Section 14.2 would have applied. However, a request for information relating to the same subject from another record is not an identical or substantially similar request for the purposes of Section 14.2. TNA also tried to argue that the cost of complying would be over the £450 limit. The tribunal ruled that section 12 and 16 must be viewed together. If a public authority claims it is not obliged to comply with a request for information on cost grounds, it would need to consider whether, with reasonable advice and assistance, the applicant could have narrowed or redefined his request such that it could be dealt with without exceeding the cost limit. In the present case, the tribunal found that it would have been reasonable to expect TNA to advise the applicant to phase his request in intervals of more than 60 days and to assist him to do so in a manner that was logical, took account of his priorities and the nature of the searches that TNA could offer, as well as TNA's knowledge of the time that would have been involved. Failure to do so meant that TNA's cost estimate was not done on a reasonable basis. Section 21 of the Act allows a public authority to withhold information which is reasonably accessible by other means. Usually this means pursuant to another legal right of access or via the public authority's publication scheme. It now seems that information which is publicly available on a website is also exempt under Section 21. In a decision involving the Cabinet Office, dated the 27th of September, the complainant made a request for details of the person or persons who drafted the executive summary of the Iraq dossier. The public authority refused the request under Section 21 of the Act, as it said that the issue had been considered as part of the Hutton Inquiry, and that this information was available on the Inquiry's website. The Commissioner found that the public authority had applied Section 21 correctly. It's unclear whether the Commissioner believes that the information was information which the public authorities obliged by or under any enactment to communicate, pursuant to Section two b or whether he simply thought that the information being on the web means that it is reasonably accessible. If it's the latter, then this decision expands the basis upon which Section 21 may be claimed. My advice previously was that just because a document is on the web does not necessarily follow that Section 21 can be claimed. Many public authorities receive requests for internal emails where officers may be discussing controversial issues frankly and sometimes often using colourful language. Section 36(2)(b) b allows information to be withheld if, in the reasonable opinion of the qualified person, disclosure would or would be likely to inhibit the free and frank provision of advice or the free and frank exchange of views for the purpose of deliberation. In a decision involving South Tyneside Council dated the 1st of October, the complainant asked the council for information which it held about the Tyne and Weir Anti-Fascist Association. In this instance, the above exemption was applied to four internal emails in which the funding of TWFA was discussed. On the application of Section 36, the Commissioner considered the arguments advanced by the qualified person and examined the information in question. The factors addressed by the qualified person included the candid nature of some of the contents of the emails and the likely impact on the quality and frankness of future advice on funding should the contents be made public. The Commissioner was satisfied that the qualified person gave proper consideration to those factors before reaching his decision, and that he came to a reasoned conclusion. With regard to the public interest test, the Commissioner acknowledged that for the Council to deal with grant applications effectively, particularly in a case such as this where serious security concerns had been raised, a certain distance must be maintained in order to allow individuals to give their personal views without concern that those views may be subject to public scrutiny it would not be in the public interest for decisions to be made on the basis of advice which was inhibited by such concerns. In the past year, we've discussed many decisions involving requests for disclosure of salaries, expenses and retirement packages of public authority employees. Decisions thus far have indicated that salaries should be disclosed if the subject of a request is senior within an organisation, is in a public-facing role or is paid substantial sums by the public purse two recent commissioner decisions involving tv personalities introduce additional factors to be considered in a decision involving the bbc dated the 8th of october the complainant requested details of the bbc's financial agreement with michael parkinson including details of his gross remuneration for the past 3 years So here we have a senior BBC personality paid substantial sums by the public purse. Surely the public need to know what those sums are. The BBC argued that the information was exempt under Section 40 as being personal data, disclosure of which would be unfair to Parkinson. According to the Commissioner, senior officials in public authorities should expect details of their salary bans to be disclosed because they're paid out of public funds commensurate with their level of responsibility. However, Parkinson is different to senior BBC executives. The BBC calls him talent. Listeners may not agree. However, the Commissioner agreed with the BBC, who argued that payments made to talent are not the same as the salaries paid to senior employees in public sector organisations. This is because the sums paid by the BBC to talent do not relate to the performance of a public function but rather to individuals who are contracted to provide services to the BBC in an entirely private capacity. In the BBC's view, disclosure of the requested information would therefore impinge on the private lives of the relevant individuals. In conclusion, the Commissioner was satisfied that Parkinson had a reasonable expectation of privacy and consequently to disclose details of his remuneration would be unfair. A similar decision was reached in the case of Gary Lineker. I find these decisions difficult to reconcile with the public's right to know, which is at the heart of freedom of information. I appreciate that Parkinson or Lineker don't spend public money or make public decisions, unlike senior public sector employees. But they do get paid large sums out of the public purse, and the public has a right to know what they get paid so they can decide for themselves whether those individuals are worth it. Also, I believe that this decision, if it's applied across the board to non-celebrity individuals providing services to public authorities, it would have an adverse impact on the scrutiny of public authorities. Does it mean that if I provide training services to a local authority, then I have a right to privacy in terms of what I'm paid? After all, whilst I'm not as famous as Parkinson, I too, like Parkinson, am often contracted to provide services in a private capacity. Where does it leave public scrutiny? Or was the decision based on the subject being famous? In which case, what about us mere mortals? This decision to me raises more questions than it answers. Did the public have a right to know whether someone attended work on a particular day? The answer is clearly no. In a decision involving Cambridgeshire County Council, dated the 10th of September, the complainant requested information as to whether an individual had attended work on a particular day. The council refused to supply the information based on section 40 personal data. It even refused to confirm or deny the existence of the information based on the same exemption. Following the commissioner's intervention, the council was required to confirm to the complainant that it did hold the information. However, the Commissioner agreed that it was personal data and should not be disclosed. This decision is currently under appeal to the Information Tribunal. It will be interesting to see what comment the Tribunal makes of the application of the duty to confirm or deny in such situations. I would have thought that even to confirm the existence of the information is telling the applicant that the individual works for the public authority. This itself may be personal data. Every month, there are Information Commissioner decisions involving requests for access to dead people's medical records. Finally, we have an Information Tribunal decision on this subject. In Bluck an Information Commissioner and an Epson and St Helia University NHS Trust, dated the 17th of September, Mrs Bluck sought access to her daughter's medical records to establish what happened when her daughter died. The hospital refused to release the information without the permission of her daughter's husband, which was not forthcoming. The Commissioner's decision to allow the use of Section 41, Breach of Confidence, to withhold the information was upheld by the Information Tribunal. It decided that all the requisite elements of breach of confidence were present. Disclosure was being sought of sensitive medical information, and it would be contrary to the deceased's reasonable expectation of confidentiality to disclose the information. The tribunal further ruled that the public interest in maintaining confidentiality in the medical records of a deceased outweighs the countervailing public interest in disclosure. The tribunal also agreed with the information commissioner that the duty of confidence between doctor and patient must survive the death of the patient, even though there was no direct case law on this point. For an in-depth discussion on this decision, as well as other decisions involving access to dead people's information, Please see my article on my website, which is www.informationlaw.org.uk. It's also been published in the November issue of the World Data Protection Report. And finally, a decision about police speed meters, a subject close to every driver's heart. In a decision involving the Home Office dated the 10th of October, the complainant requested a copy of an official handheld speed meter handbook and also a copy of the associated approved setup manual. The Home Office informed the complainant that he had already been supplied with the former document but refused the latter document, claiming that the information was exempt from disclosure under section 31, section 41, and section 43. The Commissioner evaluated all the arguments in terms of section 31. He ruled that there was no direct causal link between disclosure of the information and further crime and damage. As far as section 41 and 43 goes, he felt that the arguments as to commercial sensitivity had not been fully developed. The handbook or parts of it were widely distributed and its usefulness to competitors was very limited. Soon listeners will be able to download the setup manual which may be used to challenge speed meter convictions. I think I will just continue to drive slowly. That concludes this month's podcast. This podcast was brought to you by me, Ibrahim Hassan. I specialise in all aspects of information rights law, particularly freedom of information, data protection and surveillance law. My clients include local authorities, the NHS and government agencies. If you'd like specific advice or training on any of your information law issues, please don't hesitate to contact me. Please continue to let me have your feedback. The scripts for all previous podcasts with clickable links are available on my website www.informationlaw.org.uk Until the next time, goodbye.